It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 295 for June 3rd, 2012. Adobe Creative Suite 6. This is the preview. Nick's silver effects when color is not enough. Thinking about a laptop computer? If so, you have Walt Mossberg's permission to wait. And in short circuits, Mark Zuckerberg's brief stay on Bloomberg's Top 40. Flame, state-sponsored cyber war. And a quick look forward to 2013. New shoes, at least the kind that are made of leather and have hard soles, never seem to be comfortable until you've worn them for a while. And that's often the case with software upgrades, too. Knowing that the CS6 version of Adobe's Creative Suite includes more changes than in any recent upgrade, it was with no small amount of trepidation that I opened the various applications. The look is distinctly better, cleaner, maybe more compact, but even better, the applications fit like a comfortable old shoe. Any attempt to review the entire suite at once would be a disservice to you and to the many components of the suite. By many, what I mean is a menu with 19 entries. Granted, a few are essentially duplicates with 32 and 64-bit versions of Bridge, Illustrator, and Photoshop, but it's clear from the array of applications that Adobe intends to maintain its prominence in photography, design, website development, publishing, video, and audio. In addition to the three applications that have 32 and 64-bit versions, two applications run only 64-bit systems. Those are Adobe Premiere Pro and After Effects. The trend has been clear for several years as both Microsoft and Apple developed 64-bit operating systems. Adobe doesn't provide many hints about future versions of the Creative Suite, but it's probably a safe bet to assume that the other applications will be migrated to dual-platform support or 64-bit support only, sometime. These are powerful applications, and they operate most efficiently when they're run on powerful computers with a lot of memory, and that means 64-bit operating systems. This week I'll fill you in on the overall suite, touch on Adobe's Creative Cloud, and explain what I've heard about the company's plans. That should be enough for one day. So let's start with the suite. One thing that's important to realize when thinking about Adobe is that the company takes a long view. There is a bureaucracy at Adobe, and if you think I mean that in a negative way, you are absolutely wrong. Bureaucracies exist to ensure that everything that should happen does happen. Nothing gets left out. When you say that something is ready for people to use, it's ready for people to use. The Adobe bureaucracy has outlined a long-term view that's designed to ensure that Adobe's products will continue to be at the forefront of web, print, video, and audio communications. Adobe's Creative Suite builds on the existing applications and adds some applications that will resonate with individuals and businesses who are trying to find the best ways to communicate with their clients, customers, and prospects. Whether you choose to use the traditional PC-based applications on a Windows machine or on a Mac machine, or move to the functionality that Adobe offers in the cloud, you'll probably find that you're dealing with CS6. 
If you're a print designer, you've probably noticed that few people are talking about Quark Express these days. In fact, I couldn't even remember the name Quark Express when I was writing this section, and I performed a Google search for desktop publishing. Quark Express didn't even show up on the first page of results, although the open-source Scribus did, and so did Microsoft Publisher. All of the other links were about Adobe InDesign. Creative Suite 6 reduces the number of packages available to just four, and this is largely in response to CS5 and CS5.5 sales. Two products, Prelude and Speedgate, are new, and two applications, most notably Acrobat, have not been updated in this version. If you currently use Acrobat and you upgrade to CS6, it's important not to uninstall Acrobat. The same holds true for Flash Builder. Adobe's Creative Cloud looks like a good choice because it includes all Adobe products and makes new versions available early for $50 a month. That is slightly more than the $550 upgrade price for the Master Collection, but it also provides access to features that aren't in the Master Collection. So that takes us to the cloud. The Adobe Creative Cloud is probably the most remarkable new feature of CS6. If you choose this $50 per month option, you have access to every application Adobe creates, period. You have access to Adobe's online capabilities to share the content you create. The ability to publish content that can be used on Apple and Android tablets or phones is included, too. If Internet presence providers, the people who host websites, aren't nervous about this, they should be. Adobe Senior Marketing Director Scott Morris explained it this way, The Creative Cloud offering gives subscribers access to the tools they need to create content that they can store and share during development and publish anywhere. In the coming weeks, I'll talk with you about the new features in many of the Adobe applications and show you how they work. I'm working with the PC-based applications instead of the Adobe Creative Cloud applications, but I can tell you that from what I've seen so far, Adobe will continue to lead in a market segment that is changing quickly. ago than I'd like to remember, my wife and I were at High Banks Park. As usual, I had a camera. It was a film camera, so yes, this was a long time ago. When I mentioned that I had loaded the camera with black and white film, Phyllis was astonished. Why, why would anyone use black and white film to take pictures of trees in a forest? But when I processed the film and made prints, we both liked them enough that I made large prints and framed them. I still see them every day because they're still in frames and on the wall. Sometimes, black and white is better than color. Monochrome images don't confuse the eye with color. Composition is the key. But digital cameras record color images. Now, of course, you can convert these images to monochrome in Photoshop or PhotoPaint or PaintShop Pro. If you know enough, you will be able to create a striking monochrome image. But if you have the NYX SilverFX plugin, you can create a striking image in just a few moments and with a little additional effort you can create a wow image. You'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website a picture that I created at the Habitat for Humanity building. It's just a broomstick with some things in the background. It's an okay image, but I think it might be better in black and white, so I decided to see what I could do with Nick Silver Effects 
in Adobe Photoshop CS6. As with the other Nick Photoshop plugins, Silver Effects comes with a lot of default effects, and each of them is an exceptional starting point. The starting image, of course, was in color, and I liked the image because of the receding lines of the broom handle. And I tried several of the default settings. The first I tried was neutral, good basic starting point. The color image is converted to an excellent monochrome image. Contrast provides acceptable detail throughout the image from dark to light. I tried the underexposure effect. Now this effect controls the entire image and reduces overall exposure. This isn't normally a look you'd go for, but not all photographic needs fit into what is considered normal. Sometimes underexposure is what's needed to achieve the proper look, and this effect is a very convincing underexposure. I tried high contrast. As with underexposure, high contrast is not a normal look, and I think it doesn't work very well with this image, although it might work well if the image had been limited to just a study of the bristles of the broom. The terms I've used so far are probably all fairly familiar, but here's a new one. High structure. The structure defines the image's contrast in the mid-range tones. Adding structure is a way to increase an image's apparent clarity. When you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, be sure to compare the high structure image with the neutral image. The neutral image looks good, but the high structure image seems to pop right off the screen. You know, like when you go to the ophthalmologist, which looks better, one or two, when one view is distinctly clearer and crisper than the other. I then tried high-key and low-key effects. In a high-key image, everything is light, but nothing, or at least very little, is overexposed to the point that detail is lost. The high-key effect doesn't work very well, I think, with this image. The opposite of high-key, of course, is low-key. Everything is dark, but not underexposed to the point that detail is lost in the shadows. The classic low-key image would be a black cat or dog on a dark background. It's tricky to maintain detail in shadows like this, but Silver Effects does a remarkable job. And one of the default starting points is called Soft Sepia. Sepia offers an old-fashioned look, and the Silver Effects out-of-the-box sepia is delightful. You can, of course, modify the effect to make it more or less pronounced as you desire. Then I decided to get a little more creative, so I started with the neutral starting point and added some selective colorization, adding color back into just the broom handle and the top area where the bristles are. Those are the parts that are yellow on the broom. One of my favorite effects is selective colorization, and with silver effects, it's absurdly easy. If I had to do this on my own, I would need to painstakingly create a mask that included the broom head and the broom stick. With silver effects, all I had to do was place a control point in the yellow and increase the color setting. Then I added a little additional coloration to the bristles. And that took me to my final image. You'll see that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I'm sure the Professional Photographers of America will not award it a merit, but I like the effect. And as I like to say from time to time, if the image you create pleases you, that's all that matters. This is a versatile plugin that offers nearly 20 film emulations. As with all Nick products, you can customize any of the standard settings and save them as presets for future use. Nick and others offer presets that you can download, too. Monochrome can be very powerful. As photographer Joel Tintinlar of Holland explains, and I hope I got his name sort of almost in the general ballpark of being close, as he explains in a video on Nick's website. 
This is a $200 program, but Nick has many other worthwhile applications, and the complete collection of all Nick products ranges from $300 to $500. That makes each component a true bargain. Compare Nick's programs to filters that you'd buy for a camera, and you'll realize that the prices are more than reasonable. The bottom line for Nick Silver Effects Pro 5 Cats, it opens up the colorful world of black and white photography. Eliminate color and the photographic image you're dealing with immediately takes on a more abstract appearance. And because the viewer's eye won't be distracted by color, composition and tone become more apparent. It's possible to convert color images to monochrome in most image editing programs, but if you want a conversion process that's feature-rich and gives you a lot of choices about the final image, you won't find anything better than Silver Effects. For more information, visit the Silver Effects Pro website. You'll find the link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. about buying a laptop computer this summer? Walt Mossberg has a suggestion for you. The suggestion is wait. The Wall Street Journal's Walter Mossberg is one of the best and most reliable technology journalists in the business, and I'm taking this opportunity to quote him. Unless your laptop is on its last legs and you have to move quickly, there are compelling reasons to wait. This is true especially if you're looking for a Windows PC, but even if you're in the market for a Mac. I happen to agree with Mossberg on this, but even if I didn't, his point of view would be well worth considering. But why does Mossberg recommend waiting? Well, Windows 8, the most radical new version in years, will likely be out this fall, he says, accompanied by new PC designs. I've been running Windows 8 on a couple of notebook computers for nearly a year now, and although the start menu will be gone when Windows 8 comes to town, I'm more than a little excited by the new operating system. Again, quoting Mossberg, While Windows 8 will work with a mouse or touchpad and a keyboard, it will be heavily oriented toward tablet-type touchscreen navigation. Many PC makers are planning convertible Windows 8 models for the holiday shopping season that can act as either tablets or regular clamshell laptops. So, if you buy a standard computer now, it'll probably upgrade without any serious problems. It probably won't have the hardware features that will be particularly important for Windows 8 systems, though. Mossberg says, and again I have to agree, that it's always better, especially with Windows computers, to buy a new machine if you want the new version of Windows. My current desktop computer is three years old and thus about ready to be retired, but I plan to wait until Windows 8 is shipping, even though the touch-centric features are largely meaningless to a desktop user. And I don't plan to replace the desktop system with about four terabytes of storage and the ability to process photos, audio, and video, with a notebook computer that has considerably less storage space and limited abilities to deal with media files. On the Apple side, Mossberg says that the MacBook Pro computers are due for an overhaul. Quoting here, current Macs will likely be upgradable to Mountain Lion, but if you buy now, you'll miss out on likely new hardware. In April, Mossberg wrote about the Intel processors that are used by most Windows PC makers and by Apple. Intel plans to release new Ivy Bridge chips that will offer faster graphics performance for notebook computers without sacrificing battery life. Ivy Bridge computers will start showing up in limited quantities soon. Mossberg offers what he calls a cheat sheet to use if you need to replace a computer now, 
And if that's your situation, be sure to check out his column. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. short circuits, Zuckerberg in and out of the Bloomberg Top 40 list. If Mark Zuckerberg cared about money, the past week might have been distressing, but he claims not to be interested in money, so that 25% drop in his net worth might not mean as much to him as it would to you or me. At the end of the week, he was still worth nearly $15 billion, though. It's easy not to care about money if you're sitting on a cushion like that. Shares of Facebook stock fell below $29 this week, also known as $10 below the IPO price. Zuckerberg's 503.6 million shares are now worth $14.7 billion. That means he's no longer in the top 40. The top 40, that is, as in the top 40 wealthiest individuals in the world, according to Bloomberg News. The Facebook founder lost $2 billion in the two weeks following the IPO. Still, that's not bad for a 28-year-old Harvard dropout. Initially, Facebook shares were valued at $38 each. That placed Zuckerberg as the youngest person on Bloomberg's rich list. But now he's nearly $1 billion below Colombian banker Luis Carlos Sarmiento, whose $15.6 billion value places him in number 40. virus firm Kaspersky Lab says the flame virus, which is now spreading through countries in the Middle East, has all the earmarks of a state-sponsored cyber attack. The likely suspects are the United States and Israel. Now, of course, we don't engage in cyber warfare, just as we don't torture prisoners, because by our definition, it's not cyber warfare or torture when we do it. Symantec has sent a message to all of its users saying that they're protected from flame, and security experts are examining flame's code. The virus is far larger than most viral applications, and it appears to be designed to collect data from any computer it's installed on. Although the virus was clearly intended to attack computers in the Middle East, it has spread well beyond there. According to Kaspersky, flame appears to be related to the state-sponsored viral campaign that was designed to attack Iran's nuclear program in 2010. Stuxnet, in other words. Previously, Iran was attacked by viruses known as Duku and Stuxnet. Kaspersky Lab has conclusively linked the Duku virus to programmers who work in Jerusalem. And other researchers say that Stuxnet was tested at an Israeli facility that's thought to be the headquarters for the Israeli Atomic Weapons Program, which Israel says does not exist. Flame is an uncommonly robust virus that can spread via Bluetooth devices even if an infected computer has no internet connection. This kind of sophistication is generally considered to be well beyond the capabilities of individual virus creators.
I started thinking about what I want to change on the site for the coming year about the middle or end of November. It's different this year because although I don't plan to make any visual changes, or at least not very many of them, I'll be gutting the entire interior and rebuilding it from the ground up. Website design has changed a lot over the past decade, and there's far too much legacy code embedded in this site. You probably care more about the content than about what happens in the background, but really it is time for some major maintenance work. In the 1990s, site design was based on tables, you know, rows and columns, like in Excel. Various cells could be joined, and the result was good. At least it looked good. Behind the scenes, though, the code was a mess. And worse still, it was virtually impossible for anybody who needed a screen reader, a device that converts text to speech, to get any meaning out of the site at all. Cascading style sheets helped, and now that large parts of HTML5 are supported by all current browsers, it's time to make a switch. The 2012 design implemented some CSS3 and HTML5, but far too much outdated code remained. My goal for 2013 is to improve the site's overall standards compliance without abruptly changing the appearance. So, there will be a new menu at the top of each page. The footers have been redesigned to be somewhat less cluttered. Those who use tablets or phones to read the site should have better results. But you'll see only minimal changes in the main part of the site. That's where the articles are. So, consider this to be the first, and until the end of the year, the last you'll hear about it. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.